This is Animals Voice Podcast, presented by the Ontario SPCA, with 50 communities working together for animal welfare. We've got another great show for you on the way, so put your paws up, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Animals Voice Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McKenzie, and uh, very happy to be joined this week by Dr. Julie Brinker. How are you, Julie? I'm great, Kevin. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it's great to have you here. You do work with the Humane Society of Missouri. You're a registered vet there, correct? Yes, I am. And you're here to talk today to us about a very important topic in animal welfare. Your expertise is in the world of dog fighting and what to do with these dogs after they've been recovered from dog fighting rings. Is that a fair assessment? That's a big part of what I do. It's okay. not all of it. What else do you do? Tell me. Well, I'm primarily a shelter veterinarian, so I take care of shelter animals that come in from all sorts of situations, okay. abuse, neglect, and just off the street and handle their rehabilitation medically and psychologically. Okay, excellent. Okay, let's get right into this. I, I want to ask you, I've got a bunch of questions, and, and I'm not sure how many parts we're going to have to split this podcast into. I feel like I could sit and talk to you for about three hours today. I won't do that to you, don't <laughs> worry. When did you first get involved with the Humane Society of Missouri? I've been a vet for 16 years. 15 of those have been with the Humane Society. Okay. I started out in our clinics and gradually spent more and more time working with our shelter animals until now I'm full-time there. Okay. Animal lover your whole life. This was, were you on this trajectory from like birth onward or? Well, first I wanted to be a mad scientist and then I realized a veterinarian's <laughs> a mad scientist that works with animals yes. and bingo it, there I am. Okay. So you explained already your role uh, at the Humane Society, working with animals of all sorts that come in the door. They've been neglected, they've been abused. I mean, that's gotta be tough. I often wonder how people in your role or similar roles find the off switch when you go home at night? Because you must see terrible things. I do see terrible things, but I temper that with the idea of I can't change what happened to them before. Mm -hmm. All I can change is what happens to them now and where they can go from here. Okay. So by focusing forward, I can think about the positive. Right. So you find that balance, so right? So a, a dog or a cat comes in in really crappy shape. I think, well, I've given it fluids. I know what it needs for mental rehabilitation. I can change this, that. All right, I've got a plan. Now I can do something for this animal mm -hmm. and I can think of the possibilities of this cat that's down and really sick with a bad abscess in a couple of weeks, it's going to be better. And I can get it a nice loving home where I can spend the time on the couch all day. Nice. You're able to focus on that positive and, and the outcomes that you're affecting through yes. your work, right? How did you get involved in rehabilitating dog fighting dogs? We had taken in several small-scale, single-yard fighting busts here and there. Mm -hmm. And at that time, in our eyes, dog fighting dogs had no chance. Then Michael Vick's case came around, and they were able to save some. Well, okay, maybe we can too. So we tried, and we were able to place some of those dogs. We found that some of the dogs from those cases weren't as dog-aggressive as we thought they'd be. Okay. Not all, but some. So when I was told we were going to be taking in dogs from a fighting bus that was going to be big, mm -hmm. expect 250 dogs, and we're going to put them in this off-site animal 250 shelter. 250 at one time. We were told we were expect to get 250 dogs from the simultaneous warrant that's going to be served across eight states and 26 locations. Holy. Okay, 250 dogs outside locations, so they're, they can be guarded and it'll be confidential. This I can do this. I can handle this shelter. They served the warrants at 6 a.m. The dogs started showing up about 9, and by about 5.30 in the morning, we had 407. Oh, wow. And in order to feed the death mill that dog fighting is, you have puppies 
by the time the last puppy was born, which happened to be born to a dog we'd named tomorrow, on day 63, keeping in mind a 64-day gestation time, mm-hmm. we had 509 dogs in our shelter. Shelters that we set up in a warehouse. I was going to say, shelters aren't built to accommodate 500 dogs at one time in an influx like no, that. No, we did it. Wow. And we kept those dogs for up to 10 months. Wow. Kudos. That's a tall order. So you suddenly have hundreds of dogs that have come to you through dog fighting activity. Can you contrast for me, how is it different to rehabilitate a dog fighting ring or a dog that's come from dog fighting versus a normal quote unquote dog that has suffered abuse or neglect? Well, once you take the dog aggression out of it, it's the same. Okay. These dogs are for the most part chained. They're stuck in a yard, literally stuck on a chain, weighs almost as much as they do, attached to a tire axle in the ground. And they don't really get a lot of outside influence. They're hidden away. So all they know is their little circle of land and what they can see from there. We uproot them, we take them into a shelter, and it's a whole new situation. And some of them aren't able to deal with it, and they're scared half to death. Others love people, and they think people are the wonderfulest thing ever, and they want to love on you, and they want more attention from you. Others, because of the training they receive that involves a lot of exercise, just need to do something so they zoom around and are completely hyper. Okay. You adjust what you do to what those animals need individually. Okay. Uh, You referenced the Mike Vick case, and I need need to go back to that for a second because it's one that received so much publicity. I know you weren't directly involved with the Mike Vick case, but, you know, this is a world you have a lot of knowledge in, so I figure I can ask you about this if you don't mind. People will talk about how many of the animals were saved in the Mike Vick case. Can you articulate for me the level of aggression or the level of, like, is it normal that so many dogs from a dog fighting ring can be saved? Well, there's a difference between saved and in somebody's home and saved and in a sanctuary. Okay. About half of those dogs, to my understanding, went to sanctuary situations where they are going to stay under the care of the sanctuary and never go to a home. They're alive, but they're not on somebody's couch. They're not out on a walk in the park. They're not having the life that your dog sitting next to you as you listen to this is having. So the quality of life isn't necessarily what might be in people's minds when they hear so many of the dogs from the Mike Vick case were saved. Right. Okay. There's only so many places for dogs at that stage. I'm not that familiar with the sanctuaries that you're referencing. Do they have people around 24 hours a day? It varies from place to place. Some sanctuaries are really wonderful and do a great job, and other sanctuaries get busted for poor animal care. Okay. So it depends on where you're looking. The Michael Vick dogs all went to a great place, but that great place can only handle so many. Okay, right. Oh, I feel like I could just keep asking you questions for hours. We are going to take a quick break here on Animals Voice Podcast. We're talking with Dr. Julie Brinker from the Humane Society of Missouri about a uh, very important topic, which is uh, how to deal with dog fighting dogs. Please stay with us. We will be right back. The Ontario SPCA is gearing up for their biggest fundraiser of the year, and we want you to join us. The 2016 Friends for Life Walk is Saturday, September 24th and Sunday the 25th across Ontario. Register today at friendsforlifewalk.ca. Hey, this is Tanya Kim and you're listening to Animals Voice Podcast. 
Welcome back to Animals Voice Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Julie Brinker from the Humane Society of Missouri about a very polarizing topic, how to deal with dog fighting dogs. What goes into the process of rehabilitating dogs from a dog fighting ring? Well, first, when you're looking at the dog fighting ring, you have to evaluate how dog aggressive these dogs are and how aggressive to other situations. For example, some of the later cases, we've had dogs that were aggressive to people where most fighting dogs have no aggression to people. Mm -hmm. There's also how aggressive they are to children, what reactions they have to handling. That all needs to be taken into account. So if you can evaluate what this dog's potential danger is to other dogs, to people, and reactions to strange situations, handling food, toys, you get an idea of what an individual dog might need in order to be determined to be safe in a home situation or some other setting. Can you take me through, at more of a granular level, that evaluation? You walk into a facility or an organization or, you know, working at the Humane Society of Missouri, and you have a dog that you need to evaluate. Mm -hmm. What do you go through to evaluate that specific dog? Well, to start with, evaluations begin the minute you lay eyes on the dog, period. So you have to look at what that dog is doing and how it's behaving even before you confiscate it. Okay. Then formalized behavior evaluations vary. There's a lot of tests out there and subtests portions that can be combined. But behavior evaluations are a standardized method of observing an animal in specific situations that can be then compared. So most of these tests involve a handling segment where the animal is touched. Some of them involve evaluating play behavior. Will the dog follow me? Will the dog bounce around or cower down? There are tests for will it let you pick up a foot and squeeze? Will it let you push it down to sit? There's almost always an exposure to another dog that hopefully is one that is not reactive to other dogs. So you observe it when it sees the other dog, getting close if it's deemed safe, possibly even allowed to touch. There's parts where the dog is exposed to a large, stuffed, realistically-looking fake dog. Okay. In those situations, the dog is allowed to actually come into contact unrestrained other than at the very end of a loose leash. Okay. In other words, here you go, you have full access to this dog... What are you going to do? Are you going to bounce around and try to get it to play with you? Or are you going to rip its throat out or something in between? Okay. And I guess you've seen I've seen the, the full spectrum of those reactions. The reactions, well, when adrenaline rises, there are four possible reactions. There's a fight or flight, which we're all familiar with. Fidget, you know, pull your hair, um, shake off, and then fornicate. Oh. Some of these dogs... Their arousal level gets so high, their adrenaline is pumping, and they hump the fake dog. Oh, wow. So you go through an evaluation with a dog, and you decide that the criteria, based on how it's done through all of those evaluations, is that this is a dog that can be rehabilitated. Right. What kind of a timeline or process are you looking at to rehabilitate that dog and that you know this dog can be adopted out to a family? Well, there's several steps to that. First of all, you as an organization need to identify where your cutoff is and what you consider safe. Okay. Second, you have to actually have legal ability to move these dogs somewhere. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, many of these dogs will be rehabilitated, 
but you're still legally not allowed to send them off anywhere. So they sit around and you just have to keep them sane in the kennel until the judge or the courts or the prosecutor or whatever organization is in charge of them says, okay, you can find them homes now. Some of the dogs come in perfectly acceptable pets. Others are so petrified that it takes months to bribe them out of their shell. Just general soft exposure to a person. Others are so goofy and so energetic that you have to get their attention and train them, you know, occupy their mind in some manner so that they can settle in and pay attention. Doesn't mean they're bad dogs, they're just nuts. Mm -hmm. And you have to corral that somehow. Not untypical of most one-year-old Labrador retrievers, really. No, right. Is there a case that you've dealt with? And I think I know your answer based on the dialogue we've already had. Is there one case that stands out in particular and that makes it memorable for you? A few, actually. Okay. Um, I'd I'd love you to share them. A couple that just really demonstrate the various aspects of pit bulls. The very first pit bull I dealt with in the shelter, beginning of my career, the stray pit bull came in with huge abscesses from bite wounds all over its face and neck. Mm -hmm. And he was just calm cool, collected. He sat down and let me clean out these horribly painful swollen wounds with no restraint. He's just sitting there. Do, do, do. Okay. You're going to do this? Fine. Yeah. Oh, you have a cookie? Oh, I love you. <laughs> He's just so happy to get his cookie. So are but you he at that cooperated. Point thinking... He didn't care that I was doing painful things to him. Okay. But he had so many scars and knowing what we do now about the pattern of scars with bite wounds, and it's been proven now. Mm-hmm. That dog was a fighting dog, but he loved people so much, he didn't care. Another one was Daisy from the Missouri 500, that 500-dog pit bull rescue we did in 2009. Okay. Who was also amazingly friendly when it was quiet, but in the noise, she was petrified, and she couldn't do anything. But we could bring her into a quiet room, and she'd play fetch with us. And run around and just be a wonderful, happy dog. And she's got a great life with one of our volunteers who ended up adopting her because she wasn't doing well on our adoption floor. Okay. It's got to be a real challenge to find homes for dogs with these sorts of troubled pasts. I think it takes a special type of family or owner to take in that dog, knowing that it's not necessarily your run-of-the-mill lab that you're taking in. Do you have advice for people that are considering adopting a dog and rescuing a dog that has had a significantly troubled past, like the ones you're describing to me? Well, understand what the challenges your individual dog faces. Is it really scared of new situations? In that case, that's not a dog to take everywhere with you. Mm -hmm. Or is it a dog that maybe is a little over the top in its reactions? Does it get overly exuberant when he gets excited. That's not a dog that should go to the dog park because he'll end up being rude and start something he shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Is it a dog that doesn't like other dogs, but not so bad that he can't live in a managed situation? Well, that's not a dog that you take on walks, but it can spend some time and still maybe go to the veterinarian. It's really no different than any other dog with issues. We see the same situation with puppy mill dogs. Mm Mm-hmm. Same deal. Some are too silly and some are too scared. And you just have to adapt to what that individual dog's personality quirks happen to be. Okay. You referenced the Missouri 500. Are you at liberty to share of those 500, what were the outcomes 
We were able to find homes for about half of the dogs between behavioral issues, extreme dog aggression, or so completely shut down that after 10 months still couldn't handle life. Those dogs just couldn't find homes. Mm -hmm. There were medical issues. Some of them were just too sick or too injured or too chronically ill from other diseases that mm-hmm. we couldn't find homes for them too. Do you struggle with that? I mean, uh, I often think of people in your line of work and I see it in our investigators. I see it in, in our shelter workers with the Ontario SPCA. There's not always a happy ending despite all of our efforts and expertise. And uh, I don't know how they can find, I referenced this earlier, find that off switch. Do you have trouble coping with those difficult and stressful situations? Yes and no. The decision-making process itself is very hard, but that's where having a predetermined limit, understanding that beyond this level of aggression, we don't consider it safe in the world. Right. Or beyond this level of illness, its quality of life is not going to be rehabilitatable. Once you have those lines, the decision is almost out of your hands. It's just looking at each individual dog. Where does it fit on their limitations? And if it's unfortunately on the wrong end of the thing, you didn't cause it. You did everything you could to put it on the right end of that limit. If you couldn't accomplish that, that's not your fault. Mm -hmm. So it's unfortunate and it's painful at the time. But if you've done everything you could, I can live with that. Do you find yourself defending the decisions or the actions of our industry or your organization when it comes to rehabilitating dog fighting dogs or troubled animals. There are people that will step forward, and I mentioned earlier in this interview that this is a very polarizing topic, Mm -hmm. and understandably. There are people that will step forward and say, how can't you save every single dog? Can you explain, and I think you've touched on it a few times during this interview, but can you explain why we can't save every single dog? Well, you look at a dog and its current quality of life in whatever situation you're evaluating it. If you cannot find a manner to improve its quality of life and its current quality of life is not as good as you'd like it, Mm -hmm. if you can't make it better, there's only one other option. Unfortunately, it does not end with the dog alive, Mm -hmm. but you're not prolonging a poor quality of life. You have to look at its potential welfare down the line. If you can't make it better and if where you might be sending it could be worse, that is not a good option. Do you know of cases or examples where an animal that has been seized or saved from a dogfighting ring has been rehabilitated and then deemed adoptable and it goes out to a new family and ends up reoffending? Unfortunately, yes. A few of the dogs from the Missouri 500 came back to us because of dog aggression. Most of those were adopted out younger animals. Mm -hmm. And basically, we were unable to detect their dog aggression, but they grew into it, either from inadequate socialization after placement Mm -hmm. or from just genetic predisposition to dog aggression. It's unfortunate, but these dogs were bred to try to kill other dogs. Can you clarify the genetic disposition? Because that's that's a phrase I hear bantied around from time to time, and, and I think some of our listeners may not know what that means. In the dogfighting world, what is genetic disposition? How, how is that fostered? Well, you pick the animals that exhibit the qualities most desirable. So, for example, hunting labs, they want to go out and bring stuff back. 
Look at pointer puppies, the ones that are used for field trials. Those little guys, before they're weaned sometimes, will point at butterflies. You see it in herding dogs, Aussies especially. They go nuts when their people aren't in one place because that's what they were bred to do. Mm-hmm. So when you have a fighting dog who for generations, those ant- dogs' ancestors were bred to be dog aggressive. It's in their blood to be have the potential for dog aggression. It they're can be trained. They're literally wired that way. Yes, they're wired that way. Mm-hmm. This is why you have certain breeds that do certain things. Well, pit bulls, unfortunately, are bred for dog aggression. Not all of them are. A lot of them make wonderful home pets, but some of them do. It's unfortunate, but it's what happens. I, uh, I really appreciate your time here today. Again, I feel like I could sit and talk to you for hours, but uh, you know, you've answered so many questions here. Thank you for the work you do. Uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge and your experience with us here on Animals Voice Podcast and with the Ontario SPCA at our education conference. Mm-hmm. We're very appreciative and lucky to have you here. If people would like to learn more about the Humane Society of Missouri, is there a website? Are you guys on Twitter, we're, Facebook? We're on www.hsmo.org. Okay, great. Thanks for your time and thanks for being on Animals Voice Podcast, Julie. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you to the listeners of Animals Voice Podcast. You can track me down on Twitter at OSPCA Kevin. Uh, we'd love to hear show ideas or feedback on broadcasts. You can also uh, find me on email at kmckenzie at ospca.on.ca. Until next time, we will catch you later. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Animals Voice Podcast. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and at our website, ontariospca.ca. Animals Voice Podcast is a production of the Ontario SPCA. The Society would like to thank all our supporters. Together, we are the Animal's Voice.